All right, guys, what's up? We're live on episode number six of the Playing to Win series. I'm joined today by uh, my buddy Adrian. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing good. Um, I have a hard time pronouncing your last name. Give it to me. It's like uh, Hervatsky sort of last name, right? You're Croatian. Yeah, it's worse. It's Salomonovic. Salomonovic. Yeah, you're not the only one. Don't worry. Yeah. So a um, little bit of background story because um, we've I don't think we've ever talked face to face like we are right now. But I met you about 10 years ago through Cameron Harold. Yeah. And um, he was coaching both of us. So, um, you, you know, like I always encourage guys, if you're stuck on something, you know, one of the most efficient ways to move past it is to find somebody that's an expert at it and hire them as a coach. And uh, both you and I were getting coached separately for several months at the time. And um, I was in the debt business still, and you were running something called Canvas Pop, right? That's right. That's right. And were you just getting started up with the DNA um, Canvas prints? What was that called? DNA? DNA 11. Yeah. DNA 11, that was it. DNA 11 was first. Uh, DNA 11, I mean, we're going back almost 12 years ago, I started making uh, DNA prints from people's DNA, right? So we take a sample of your DNA and make it into a piece of art. It was supposed to be just a, a fun side project. As you can see by my background, I'm really into art. I love collecting art, making art. Um, I've been into art all my life and I decided to turn it into a business, turn that passion for art into a business called DNA11.com. And uh, yeah, we built it up to about a million in revenue in the first year with no advertising or anything. And the problem was we were stuck at a million bucks a year. Like, long time ago, we, we didn't know how to break out of it. So we hired Cameron to kind of show us, to tell us what we didn't know uh, and sort of break our mold and break our systems. And that's, yeah, that's us on, uh, on, uh, on CSI New York. There was an episode. Yeah. Where, so here I'll, know, here I'll kind of pause it. Cause we're kind of skipping up ahead a little bit, but yeah. this is, this is the thing that fascinated me about, um, Cameron's introduction to you because, um, you were a pretty early on startup and one of the most efficient ways to market and sell is to get free PR. Yes. And he used to, so let's kind of rewind a little bit more. He used to be the COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and that was a really fast growing company. They sold tons of franchises. Um, you see their trucks everywhere. I mean, when you start to see them, then you see them everywhere. That's right. uh, before that, you hardly ever notice them unless you need to get junk removed from your house. But anyway, so they became really, really good at getting free PR placements in the media for their product. And Adrian had a ton of success doing it himself. And with an early startup, you got DNA 11 on CSI, right? That's right. It took a little while. It took a lot of hustle, a lot of kind of uh, doing stupid stuff, I call it, like or naive stuff for, for you know, to use so, a better term. So I'm not going to play the audio because it screws up the um, uh, channel, the monetization. But yeah. but maybe like walk me through the clip over here because I just saw it on the wall back over there in the corner. But yeah. this is the actual clip from the scene where they had your canvas on the wall. Yeah, it's in the background. You can see it there. But the cool thing was the entire episode was written around our art, the thing we invented called DNA 11. And so we actually helped them catch a criminal. So they turn it over and you can see they're kind of um, seeing that this realtor has our DNA portrait on the wall. So they start you know, adding up one plus one and saying, well, we want her DNA. She's not giving it up. She's like, I'm not going to give you my DNA. So they get, they use one of our portraits to catch her. And that's how they ultimately catch her as a criminal. Um, the funny thing is I was on set. I got to go visit on set and, and be, you know, just off camera for this. It's pretty cool uh, experience to be on the, uh, on, on the set of this. And uh, we didn't know how the episode, they, they wouldn't tell us how they wrote us in. They could have done whatever they wanted. And we, we had no record. So there it is right there. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you can't catch a criminal through a DNA portrait because there's not enough DNA uh, uh, 
data no, it works great for Hollywood though, right? Yes, Hollywood. I mean, CSI was known for uh, exaggerating the abilities of science a little bit, forensic science. But there they are. They're connecting the dots. They're kind of yeah. saying, you know. So it was really a cool moment to be sitting in a you know small apartment in Ottawa with friends and family, watching your idea, the thing that was in your brain just a couple of years previously, now on the most watched television show at the time in the world. There's over eight million viewers. So that was a pretty surreal moment. Pretty cool. Oops, hold on a second. I pulled you out of the stream. Sorry, back up about five seconds. You still there? Yep, there okay. is. So it was, yeah, it was pulled you out by, by accident instead of the um, video stream. No worries. So, um, yeah. so how did you convince them to place your portrait on the set? Like, what was the pitch? Yeah, the so the pitch, um, it wasn't really a pitch. What it was was a pretty naive move. I sent a letter, like an actual handwritten letter to Anthony Zucker, who's the executive producer of uh, CSI New York. And uh, I just said, I'm a fan. I love the show. I love what you're doing for DNA. Uh, you know, you're, you're making forensics part of the uh, mainstream. And as a, as a gift, I'd like to make you a free portrait. And uh, let me know. I'd love to make you one. I'm a big fan. That was it. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear back from him. And uh, forgot about it. And a couple months go by, and I was living in Miami at the time, and my phone rings. And it's this lady, she says, hey, my name is Patty. I'm with the show CSI New York. We've actually created an episode about your company. And we were wondering if we could get some samples. And so you didn't pitch them on placing it for an episode. You're just like, I'm a big fan. Here's the portrait sort of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you got a call shortly after that. I did. And I, I thought it was a joke. I really did. And uh, we ended up flying down. I ended up flying down to LA to watch the filming of the episode. We sent the samples, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, this was so early in the company that it was like a big deal like, to send a thousand dollar portrait. We're like, I hope this pays off. Like, of course it pays <laughs> off, you know? So it was kind of funny, you know? Um, but the lesson learned there is kind of do things, you know, when others zig, you have to zag sometimes, like not having any startup capital, not being venture backed at the beginning really made us do crazy things and be creative and, and kind of, I guess, as we get older, some people get afraid of rejection, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You get ignored and you say no. So we took a risk and, uh, you know, something I, that's part of my mantra to this day is uh, if you don't ask, you don't get. And sometimes you have to do 100 asks to get one yes, but that one yes can change everything. And that was a, a huge moment in the history of that company. How many employees did you have at the time when you got that place? So that was about 12 people. <laughs> we're 12, well, there are only 12 people. Right. Uh, in this, we were in this kind of second story above a, a cellular shop. It was a cool space, don't get me wrong, but it was, it, you know, we eventually grew to over 100 people. So um, it started as an idea between two friends. We hired five, six people, and then we got to 10 people. We're like, what's going on? This is spinning out of control. It's supposed to be a side hobby. And then we spun out Canvas Pop from DNA 11. And without taking venture capital, we grew the company to at uh, one time, uh, yeah, nearly 100. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I want to talk about the whole bootstrapping thing in a bit. But um, so how did that free PR placement affect the business revenue, growth, and all that? Like, was it like was it noticeable or did it was it just like a little blip? Yeah, I mean, we weren't mentioned by brand. We were mentioned by concept. So it's, it's, she says in the episode, if you go watch it on YouTube, she says, you haven't heard of this? It's called DNA art. It's the latest thing. Right. So, so, of course, did you own the keyword for DNA art? Absolutely. So that's another important thing. I own the cop, uh, the trademark on dnaart.com, even though we were uh, trading as dna11.com. So our marketing address is dna11. I own dnaart.com and I had a background in SEO. I had one of the top search engine 
people in the world teach me SEO, which was a, ended up being a huge benefit. But uh, our sales went up, you know, tens of thousands uh, that month. But it kept happening because every time they play the episode around the world, you know, there's another 10, there's another 20, there's another 30. But PR isn't about one thing. It's about creating momentum, right? You got to, it's many, many, it's just like the show that you created. And you get tens of thousands of views uh, per episode and more. You're probably your first episode. I imagine you only had a couple hundred views. So you have to build momentum. And it's about making a lot of small incremental moves that eventually add up to you being on CSI New York or being on the Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever. And you have to ride that momentum. So it's, there's no silver bullets, you know. Um, it, it, this was this didn't just happen overnight. I had to do a hundred mini moves to get to that level. What did you end up doing before the canvas printing company? Like, were you always an entrepreneur? Did you work in the corporate world? Like, how did you? Like, what's the Batman origin story for you? The Batman origin story is uh, a broke kid uh, living in a middle class, small house. Um, my mom would buy me two things, any book that I wanted and um, basically food. Everything else was on me to hustle and to figure out how to how to make money. So um, I started as a paper boy, as many, many entrepreneurs, including Richard Branson. Yeah, Did you have I a paper room? Yeah, I had two of them, actually. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, that's, I believe, what 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 spawned many, many entrepreneurs was the paper route. So um, unlike most paper boys, what I ended up doing is I ended up buying other people's roots and then getting other people to do the work for me eventually. So I ended up having a little network of, uh, of I remember doing this because I wanted to make more money and I couldn't do it with just one route. So yeah, I you know what I figured out? The money was in the tips with paper roots. Like I remember collecting the tips. You didn't make any money off the route itself. Yeah. I used to have a couple of friends help me. Like I kind of subcontract out my, my stuff as well. Yeah, but I would always collect the tips because that's where the money was. It's true. So that teaches you that when you do that five percent extra, you you get you get rewarded for that, and you, you know when you deliver on time, you get rewarded for that. So that's where it started. But I won't go too far back and bore you. But essentially, I started my first business, real business, in high school, selling varsity shirts for my school with my own brand. Nobody else was selling it, so I sold about eight or nine hundred shirts. Made you know five or ten thousand, I think five thousand dollars, which back then in 1995 was a lot of money for a for a 16 year old kid to have. And I realized like this is the way to do it. So I I, I never had a real job. I sold my first company at the age of 21. What was that? Uh, it was called Media Wave, and it was a web development company. I was one of the first guys to develop a, a web development company in the uh, mid 90s. There was the web barely existed. And uh, sold it to a company called Nova Networks. It was an acquisition. And that was my only corporate job. I became the president of that division at 21, 22 years of age and quickly learned that I hated the corporate world. I mean, I was miserable mm. being inside of a glass building in a real corporation. Quit that, became a, uh, a consultant for several years, hired gun, uh, loved the freedom, but but missed having my own baby, you know, missed having something that was truly mine. Mm -hmm. So I was making great money, you know, six figures. Um, at the age of now 25, 26, and money didn't wasn't what was making me happy. I was kind of miserable because I was didn't have a venture to call my own. Started a mobile uh, mobile app company before mobile apps were a thing. Believe it or not, back in the BlackBerry days. Did you ever go to Failed. school, like college, university, or anything? Yeah, I went to Galkin for marketing, which is nothing to be. Was that a waste of time? Sorry. Was that a waste of time? Like, did you learn anything? Uh, you know what? Uh, I am pretty anti-academia in general. Like, I, I think you learn the most from mentors and books and just doing, especially in the world of entrepreneurs. I'm not talking about being a doctor or a lawyer. I'm talking mm -hmm. about the stuff we do. You learn from doing. But mm -hmm. I have to say that, you know, as much as I knock a golf and sometimes it's jokingly because 
I learned the fundamentals, right? Um, a good boxing gym, as an example, will teach you how to jab and right hook and how to your stance, but it's not going to make you a good street fighter. You got to go out and do, you know, you got to go out and get some some black eyes to learn. It's the same thing with business. Like I learned product positioning. I learned, uh, which I still use to this day. I learned about the four P's of marketing, you know, product, pricing, all that kind of stuff. But then where I really did my learning is I was actually running this company that I ended up selling moonlighting. I was building a company while everybody else was just going to school and doing homework. I was actually building a real company and that made things more real in academia. When I was doing accounting class, I was actually listening twice as hard because I was, I needed to learn how to do accounting. And so, you know what though? Like one of the things that blew me away, I was thinking about this earlier today, college, right? Like I went to college and they would teach you accounting, like bookkeeping right. skills, yeah. how to reconcile columns, where they all go, how the government wants, you know, generally, uh, what do they call it, gap, generally accepted accounting principles. And after the fact, when you get out of it and you run a business, you don't do the accounting, you hire an accountant. That's right. You, you don't want to do that shit. You want, like, like that's tedious plebeian work sort of thing, right? Like you yeah. hire it out to either a bookkeeper or to an accountant to reconcile and do the CRA stuff, right? Yes, and if you're doing your own bookkeeping, you're 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 screwing you're up. Your time. Yeah, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. But the best race car drivers, the best Formula One drivers, understand how motors work, engines work, spark plugs work, brakes yeah. work, and so it's about really understanding your craft. Yeah, I, I've forgotten half of what I learned in accounting in school, mm-hmm. but I know enough to be able to look at a profit loss statement. Like there are there are business owners that do not understand how a profit yeah. loss statement. A profit loss statement, or um, you know how basic cash flow works. So you, you need those fundamentals, but you got you got to learn it from doing real quick, or else your your business isn't going to work, right? So by twenty five, it sounds like you had about three different businesses. Yeah, I, I did. Um, I had multiple cash flow, um, you know, situations also. But yeah, I had been on my third company, uh, failed. I raised venture capital, you know, uh, in my twenties, failed miserably uh, at it. Uh, during 9-11, actually, we were trying to go for our, a, our, our major A round. That fell apart. And I, I felt the pain of what it's like to have to, uh, you know, fire 12 employees and close a shop. I, mean, I never wanted to feel that again. And I carried that those lessons to the rest of my career up until today. Um, why didn't you ever, like, subscribe to the standard, go get a corporate job, you know, get a degree, frame it in mahogany, oh. stick it on the wall and you know, go work for somebody else and line their pocket with gold. Like, why didn't you ever do that? Well, part need, part necessity, part experience. Like one, I don't think I'm very employable. I don't know who would hire me full time. I don't make a great employee at all. Yeah. I doubt you would either. Um, the the fun, the thing that it came down to is I, I looked at, you know, who's stuck on the highway at 5 p.m. every day, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't want to be one of them. And so I started emulating people that I admired in town. It was a guy named Mike Copeland who started Corel. Uh, there was Terry Matthews. There was, uh, you know, Richard Branson, somebody I admired. I said, what do these guys have in common? And then what they had in common is that they were titans of their industry. They were developing their own markets and they were working for themselves. They weren't working for somebody. And um, I just figure, you know, for me, it comes down to freedom and control. Uh, when you own your own business, you have no one to blame, right? You're in full control. Mm-hmm. If you get fired, you did it to yourself. And if you become a multimillionaire, you did that to yourself as well. You do need a team, but not to ramble on with it, but I I, I don't think I had a choice. I don't think uh, I had to be an entrepreneur. I knew it from a very early age and I've never looked back and I don't think I'll ever will be anything other than an entrepreneur. Did your parents ever run a business like your mom and dad? Like, like what was that story like growing up? No, I'm, 
you know, I think I, my grandfather was a great entrepreneur in South America. Um, and, and I saw that. And that's another thing that I admired. I admired my grandfather greatly. My father worked for the city. My mom worked at a school and I watched them struggle financially their entire lives. And I knew that what they were doing wasn't what I wanted. I wanted abundance and that hunger. And I see this pattern on all my friends. Every single one of them, I have two friends that are billionaires and a couple that are 100 millionaires and a bunch of millionaires. And you know what they all have in common? And I want to ask you if you have this in common is they didn't grow up with money. They grew up hungry. And uh, that's the key. Most, most really successful entrepreneurs did not have a silver spoon in the mouth. That's where a lot of guys go wrong. Like a lot of people will point and sputter at guys like us and they'll be like, well, somebody just gave you the money. You know, yeah. like one of the common, um, uh, you know, charges against Donald Trump seems to be, well, his dad gave him a whole bunch of money. So that's why, you know, he's a billionaire today. Yeah. Well, you know, he had a start, but most people that, that make a lot of money or are successful with multiplying money, um, they came from nothing and they, and they know the pain of having nothing or struggling with, you know, life and, you know, basic shit. I was telling somebody the other day, like, I remember when I was a kid, um, I was cold in the winter, you know, a lot of the times, like I had a lot of blankets in my bed. I remember we had this like sheep, like the sheep shear um, skin, you know, on the floor. Right. And that would be on the floor in the summertime. In the wintertime, my parents would put it on my bed to keep me warm. <laughs> or like food was even rationed in my house when I was growing up because my dad was like a product of the Second World War in England. And when he was growing up after the war, like buttons were rationed, eggs were rationed, bread was rationed, like everything was rationed. So he would yep. ration food with us growing up. So I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's like, this sucks. I'm not doing this when I'm an adult. And that from that pain comes profit or for that pain comes opportunity. And, and, uh, you know, I hope if I have kids someday, I think I'm, I mean, they don't have paper roots anymore, but I'm going to, I'm going to make them work. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I'm going to make oh, yeah. them work. Um, I think a mistake, a lot of second, you know, they say wealth skips a generation and I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over again. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I'm telling you everyone, everyone that I know that's successful, you included now that I know your background a little bit more, it, it comes from hunger. You need to be hungry. And I think the, the biggest challenge is later on in life when you do have a massive abundance and you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, is how do you stay hungry? And that's always a challenge, right? Is, is, uh, is that's something I struggle with is also just to staying hungry and staying curious and staying hustling. Because, it, you know, it's easy to, to lay back and, and, uh, and just sit back, but I, I don't think I can do it. Do you think... Um... Like the title of the show is playing to win, right? And there's a distinct difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. Have you ever used Colin Collard for like a facilitated uh, retreat? Uh, what is the, what's the, uh, what Colin is the Colin Collard is the guy's name. No, I have no, I don't know. Okay. Um, I think he works more with high level companies right now. Cause I was trying to get him booked for like a retreat that I'm, that I'm trying to schedule in for the spring, but, but he doesn't do small stuff anymore. But one of the concepts that I learned from him was, you know, um, a lot of guys, when they get into stuff like, even even starting to work in a business, it's almost like you've got a, a racehorse giving pony rides. And it's only until you wake up and you realize that you're that you're truly a weapon and you need to unleash yourself and stop holding yourself back and just give yourself the you know the permission to be excellent at what it is you're gonna do, that you know the greatness starts to happen. Um, at what point did you realize for you that it was like, okay shit, like I'm onto something, this is big. Like there's always that aha moment where it's like you take a frying pan to the forehead. It's probably not when you're doing the paper route or anything like that, yeah. but at some point when you're running a business, like um, like for me, it was when I switched over from 
um, in my debt business. It was around 2005 or six. This is about five years before I met Cameron, right? Yeah. So it was about 2005 or six, and I switched over from a model of basically um, eating immediately what you would kill. So it, it was like this, go out, hunt, kill something, you're fed, and then you have to go and repeat that every other day or every other week or so in order to keep the revenue flowing. And then I realized when I switched the model over to subscription-based and I built the plan over like three or four years and people would subscribe to a program for a longer period of time that it created more sustainable revenue. You had a customer for a longer period of time. You had a, a good idea of your accounting at the start of the month when you'd open up the business, how much money was coming in because you had a certain number of customers that were paying a certain amount. Yeah. For me, that was like the frying pan you know, the forehead moment. And I was thinking to myself, all I got to do is multiply this. And this could be a five, 10, 25, 50 right. million dollar business, right? Yeah. What was it's, that point for you? You know, there, there's been so many small moments when I was present at the moment and appreciated what was happening. I think the one, there's a couple of moments. So the, the first moment that stands out for me is uh, when I got my, when I first started DNA 11, we got our first order from somebody in California that I'd never met before. And this is before Shopify. Uh, I'm really good friends with the Shopify founders and they were just building Shopify at the time. So we couldn't even use their platform. Mm -hmm. And I remember we're really early in the e-commerce game and it was such a magical moment seeing somebody I never met before buy a six or $700 piece of art over the internet and seeing that order come in. That was the first humbling moment where I was like, wow, this e-commerce stuff is magic, right? That what was the artwork? Was it, it like was a DNA 11? It was a DNA 11 portrait. Oh, okay. Yeah. And somebody bought that. And this is like 12 years ago. And, and that was and about that was, six or 700 bucks at the time. Yep. Okay. Yeah, up to 1000 1200 from from we had stuff for $200 up to $1,200. But at that time, the average transaction was around $500. So, and you got to remember, it's a portrait made of your DNA. It's not something everybody needs or wants. So that was really a magical that somebody who never met before bought this thing. And that was a moment I realized how powerful e-commerce could be. I think fast forwarding a few years later, though, uh, we, had a, we had a facility in Las Vegas that had, you know, 50, over 50 people working in it. And walking in that facility, a facility that I had never stepped into before as the co-founder of the business, and walking in and seeing, you know, 50, 50, 60 people around the holiday seasons working in this factory and no one knew who I was. They didn't know I was the co-founder. I didn't, I didn't announce myself, but it was a really surreal moment walking around and just seeing all the, you know, huge, you know, 20,000 square foot building filled with people that I never met before that were working for me. It was like a proud moment, I would say, where I'm saying, wow, I can't believe this thing is in Vegas and all these people don't, you know, it was a magical moment. So that was another moment for me that, that stood out. But uh, yeah, I think it's about creating those moments, right? Where you, where you give yourself permission for a minute to just kind of celebrate your, your milestones and your successes. And we as entrepreneurs often don't stop to recognize those, those moments until later when we look back. Yeah, I know guys, um, guys are pretty tough on themselves when it comes to running a business. They don't like to pause very often and look in the rearview mirror to see how far they'd all come, right? Yeah. Um, you and I... Um, I know I did anyway. Look, I took a lot of uh, coaching and tips from Cameron on uh, company culture. Um, yeah. I saw some of the pictures of your outfit. Um, I think one of the facilities was in Ottawa, and then you moved it down to the States at one point, right? Yeah, we had two um, facilities going at the same time, yeah. Yeah, so um, like, how important was culture in like the playing to win concept, like the growth of the business? Yeah, I think culture is really, really important. Like, uh, I coach dozens of companies today, and I don't say coach, I advise them. I don't consider myself a coach to the company, more of an advisor, but I think culture makes a huge difference, right? It's what, uh, it's, what are, it's like, what's the definition of culture when it comes to your understanding of it? Maybe that's kind of like back it up to just a little, little simpler. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's the common fiber that, um, 
ties everyone together, right? And so it's the culture to me is when a company's mission driven, everyone in the company has got alignment and that alignment that the bill, the, the, the fact that everybody in the company kind of understands the why of the business, that is in its essence, the culture. Uh, that's how I see it anyways. It's that familiarity between everybody, that common factor between every employee where they're all pointing in the right direction. When you have that happening, and that's what I consider a great culture. I'd love to hear what you, what, how you define culture. I, I went really far with it. Like I got high on the Kool-Aid and I probably went a little bit too far at one point, but, um, I basically went on this mission. Like I toured, um, Zappos twice. Yeah. I went and saw, um, uh, I can't remember his first name, but the guy that ran uh, rewards out in uh, Liberty Village, uh, Sulman. Yeah, yeah, I you know remember what I'm talking that. about. Uh, yeah, you know Cameron's sister's place. I went out to um, the one eight hundred contact. No, what was the name of that? Uh, yeah, I actually went out to one eight hundred got junk in Vancouver one time because yeah. we did a um, EO uh, a university out in Whistler. So I stopped by and saw Brian. That's cool. um, I probably saw about six or seven different places and I'm like, okay, I got a good idea now. And I did like the whole rip off and duplicate. Yeah, of course. And, and it was like everything in my office was like that. Yeah. It, you know, it was like all of those businesses had sex and it's like this entire thing just kind of poured out into the, like, and just vomited all over the wall. Like, like shit was on the walls. It was in the office space. Like people loved it, man. Like we had, um, we got recognized by world blue for one of the world's best, um, you know, working cultures as well. But it, but at some point, one of the things I noticed that if you go too far with the culture, yeah. people start to get a little too comfortable with it, right? Like mm -hmm. the focus in productivity, getting shit done. Like if you have a chill room in and there's people taking naps and the naps are like running like a little yeah. bit over like 10, 15 minutes and productivity yeah. starts to go down, small yeah. things like that, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you got to be super careful with culture. So that's one of the things, you know, whenever I'm coach, coaching somebody on their culture and their growth and stuff like like there's a careful area that you have to work within. Like you can go too far. I agree. I, I totally agree. Like, um, by the way, I wasn't the culture guy at my company. If I'm, and I also did. I also got to meet Tony Shea and did the Zappos yeah, yeah, tour. Yeah. Was, quite honestly, the place was a bit of a frat house. Mm -hmm. But um, the, I love that they gave free books away, and I love the the fact that these people were making minimum wage and were absolutely obsessed with the brand. And so that's why we moved to Vegas. It was actually uh, it was Tony Shea that inspired that. Uh, that's what we set up in Vegas. So that's mm -hmm. what it's funny that you mentioned that. But I wasn't the culture guy. My ex-business partner was the culture guy at the business. I was kind of the guy in charge of making money, you know. And so sometimes I would look back and be like, all right, we're making, you know, all this revenue. And and things would go a little far. Like there'd be a – we had a beer, those Kaganators in the, in the office. And people were getting – hammered during the day right which i'm like this has gone too far like we're we're a business at the end of the day also remember we're running a factory okay if you've ever been in a factory before there aren't too many factories in canada but we we well, you can lose fingers and machines and stuff right every, every you know you, you there's a reason you rarely see machines in canada it's because square footage costs taxes minimum wage like it's not a place for factories right china's yeah. a good place for factories uh, Mexico is a good place for factories, but not Canada. Well, we had a bunch of like really hipster kind of guys working for us. And we ca I caught a guy napping in, underneath one of the shelves once. I caught guys playing guitar in the middle of the day. And no wonder our, you know, our, our operating costs were off the Richter scale. So, so yeah, you can go a little too far. If you're building a factory, you know, if you're an Amazon warehouse, sadly, and you're trying to compete for the, for the you know, a penny of margin, you've got to run a tight ship. And so I agree, there's got to be a balancing act between culture and, and efficiency. 
So um, what are you doing today? Because I mean, like you exited from Canvas Pop, you had exited from DNA 11. What'd yeah. you do? Did you sell the businesses? They merged with somebody else? Like what happened to them? Yeah, so it was, um, it was actually a, a venture capital buyout. So the VCs, we, we raised uh, on a $14 million valuation uh, almost two years ago. And as part of that, I exited um, my, my, most of my shares. I, I still have uh, a portion of my shares that I've kept in the business, but I, I recently uh, sold off uh, more than half of my position in the company. And so uh, it was to me a great move because after 10 years, you know, the, the thing is everybody has these sort of Instagram dreams of you, you build this app it skyrockets and Facebook buys you, but it takes a decade. You know, I've, I haven't met too many people I haven't spent at least 10 years. And I was at my 10 year mark and quite honestly, I was burned out, really burned out. And I wasn't passionate about the business anymore. Um, and I needed a way out. And, and this was, you know, we went 10 years without raising a penny of venture capital. We bootstrapped it to eight figures, which is difficult to do. Mm. And uh, raising venture capital allowed me to have an earlier liquid, liquidity event and, and get the heck out of there while I still had some some energy and some youth left in me. And so, yeah, that's what I did. And what are you up to these days? So I'm mainly doing a lot of advisory work. I'm kind of back to where I was 12 years ago before I started DNA 11 and Canvas Pop. I'm actually really lucky to be in this blank state right now. When I blank canvas, meaning anything's possible, but I, I can't just sit around and, and uh, you know, surf and snowboard all day. I, I need to keep, stay busy. So I advise uh, a dozen companies. I'm on the advisory boards of about 12 companies. Um, some of them pay me equity. Some of them can pay me cash and equity. Um, I wrote a book. Uh, the first thing I did upon exit was launch this book with Cameron Harold, actually, uh, called Free PR. Um, doing there's a, a link for that in the top comment pinned down there, by the way, guys. Yeah, check it out. It's I think it's one of the best books on PR out there because it's a, a truly a manual on how to uh, scale your business without paying for advertising. So Cameron and I took a decade decades worth of knowledge, how he built 1-800-GOT-JUNK or helped to build 1-800 and how I built Canvas Pop and DNA 11 without ever hiring a PR agency or spending a dollar on advertising. We, we didn't really spend almost any money to build an eight-figure business. Uh, so we want to really what I'm feeling right now is I've got all this knowledge and battle scars and experience. And I feel like I need to pass on some of this onto my, my clients, my coaching clients and, and, mm -hmm my courses and all that kind of stuff. There's a gazillion people doing this stuff, but I feel like I'm doing it legitimately. I'm doing it with the right intentions. And I just want to, I just want to share my knowledge and my, my lessons, man. That's, that's what I'm doing. So, um, you did a video that you linked to me the other day when I asked on Twitter, um, you know, what advice would you give yourself when you were younger? And I think there was another video that I saw in it where you went through like, uh, three or four simple steps on how to get PR. Yeah. Can you kind of walk people through what those are? Like, I know the book details a lot more. And sure. it's got, you know, like plenty of storytelling, but can you give away some of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to give it away because that's what I want. I just want people to learn the fundamentals. And the, I mean, the first thing that you have to do is really be able to explain your business in one sentence, right? I mean, it start, really does start with that because a lot of people are trying to get into, you know, TechCrunch or New York Times or GQ or whatever they want to get into, but they can't really clearly identify who they are, what they do, and why they're different. So that's the first thing we start on is, you know, understand who you are and why people should give a shit about what you're doing. Once you're done that, you really do need to understand who your customer is. And I, and I know it sounds obvious to you and me, but a lot of people are building these businesses. They really don't fundamentally understand who their consumer is, who their actual customer that pays for the product is. The reason we want to know that 
is if we know who our customer is, then we know where to go target them, what they read, what podcasts they listen to, and all that stuff. So it's our secret weapon to be able to, to target them. And once we know those targets, then we can go to those targets. You know, okay, let's talk about tactical soap because I know they're one of your sponsors. Is, is, is that the new way to get free PR? Because in the past, you know, it would be to get on mainstream media, but now is it podcasts? For sure, podcasts are, are a huge play right now. Huge play. And the reason is... Um, you may not hit, um, uh, we used to go on Good Morning America, hit 3 million people in one day and sell a ton of product. But those numbers are dwindling. Like people are watching less and less live television or mm-hmm. news or television, period. Yeah, it's interesting, sh- shifting more over to social media stuff and podcasts is. and YouTube and all that. It is. And so if I'm selling soap for manly men, I'm going to sponsor uh, I'm going to sponsor one of your podcasts because I know who your target is, right? Exactly. Um, and so you're not going to get that level of targeting on the Today Show. You're going to hit 3 million people with a carpet bomb, 3 million people with your message. But I, I believe today it's about sniping, about focusing your, your your message. Now, the best thing happens when you hit one of these niche players that has, you know, 8 million viewers. So same, same idea. You get on Joe Rogan, you know, and, you know, there's different audience sizes. Then you're going to get that niche and you're also going to get that massive amplification at the same time. And so that's really what it's about. Understand your market, understand how you're unique, and then think big. A lot of people will go pitch their local radio station or something because their cousin works there or something. Mm-hmm. We've always gone big. Go to the Today Show, go to Good Morning, go to Joe Rogan. You know, go to the biggest targets you can find, Get create that, and then the smaller podcasts and the smaller uh, publications will just pick you up organically. And, so... And so yeah. um... So let's use an example. Like I'm just finishing up my book. It's going through the edits. It should be done in a few months. Um, it's basically like about 20 odd chapters of stories that um, guys really need to understand to do better in the world. I mean, there's a lot of rudderless men today, that, you know, as a function of societal programming, single mother household. There's a whole bunch of reasons for it. Yeah. Um, but these are a bunch of very useful lessons. So let's say I want to get on the Joe on the Joe Rogan podcast. Like, how would I pitch him? Like how well, would that work from your perspective? So we've got a couple companies on Joe Rogan, and it was done pretty organically. I was advisor to a company called Hayabusa that makes uh, MMA combat gear, and uh, Joe Rogan uses his stuff, their stuff exclusively. That was done organically. Um, I also got Canvas Pop. So, all right, first of all, two things. You've got to lead with value. Okay, and I'll tell you how I got Canvas Pop actually on Joe Rogan's Instagram feed. Um, real story. Um and you, can, you guys can look this up if you want to kind of see the picture. Um, here's what I did. Here's what we did. Uh, at this time, I had a PR team working for me, and I really wanted to get on Joe Rogan. I just didn't know how why Canvas Pop would, would, would belong on Joe Rogan, but we figured out a way to do it. And so sometimes about looking for opportunity and leading with value. What do I mean? Well, um, young Jamie was talking about uh, some epic photo that Joe Rogan had, and my PR head of PR guy was a huge Joe Rogan fan. In fact, he used to listen to it during the day at work. Mm-hmm. And he found an opportunity. He said, you know what? I'm going to contact Jamie, the producer of Joe Rogan, and say, hey, we would love to print that epic photo for you. I can't repeat what the picture was because it was a pretty crazy photo. Mm-hmm. But he, he just, he again, like like same way I got on CSI New York, I didn't say, can you give me a free ad on your podcast? I we, you know, I said, I want to make you a free piece of art. We did the same thing to get on Joe Rogan. I said, we're huge fans. Uh, and it wasn't me. I have to give uh, credit to Chase, the guy who was, you know, leading PR, uh, working for me at the time. He he pitched at the right time with the right message and bringing leading value and said, I want to print that picture for you. And he did. He printed it and shipped it off for free. They loved the print. 
And then we ended up taking a picture of Conor McGregor and repeating it a bunch of times. And this was when Conor McGregor wasn't so hated. Uh, and we printed it off and sent that as a gift. And without asking, Joe Rogan put it on his main feed and said, I want to thank Canvas Pop uh, for printing this. And it got hundreds of thousands of likes. And so that's one example. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, I do a couple of things. I, I would make sure that he hears about you from other people. So I would get the whole Richard Cooper uh, army, uh, right? The whole playing to win army out there to start at messaging Joe Rogan. Just actually do this. If you're listening to this right now, go on to Instagram and mention Richard Cooper and, and just do this on his feed. And I guarantee Joe Rogan says he doesn't read his comments. Bullshit. I guarantee you he reads his comments. He reads his DMs. And if 12 people, if just 12 people, maybe 24 people, all message him within the next couple of days, he's going to get on the radar. He's going to go check out what, what Richard's talking about. And he's going to get on his radar. And you never know, young Jamie could be DMing you, Richard, and uh, asking you to be on the show. I've had two friends on the show. Believe me, it can happen. So first of all, I would need you to believe that you could do it. I actually believe you're a great fit for Joe Rogan. And uh, it'll happen. But you got you got to make it happen. Let me ask you this question. So there's so there's some businesses that are not very sexy for the media. So I tried really hard to get my debt business um, some free PR because I really, you know, saw what happened when he did it with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I talked to the other people that were using the same principles. Yeah. And I even hired, um, uh, what was his name? Tyler from Megawatt PR. Like, I don't know if you ever met Tyler. He was the guy that got, that got lost in the hike. He never showed yeah. up again like he disappeared. Yeah, very um, yeah, yeah. But I even hired him to, to do some work too. And he was unsuccessful at it as well. Very unsuccessful. So uh, there's certain businesses stuff, yeah. that just don't get picked up on PR because yeah. debt is not a sexy thing to talk about. You know what? No. Uh, you know the mistake you made in this one area What's is that? no one can tell the story better than Richard Cooper. At this stage, at the early stage, when you're trying to get that flywheel, PR is like a flywheel. And the at the beginning, you've got to take the leadership position to go tell your story and, and to tell your narrative. And I, I, I think credit is, is sexy because what you can do with credit is amazing when you have a great credit score. And, um, you know, when you authentically tell your message, and I've actually caught videos of you on uh, social media, it might have been Twitter, it might have been Facebook, I don't remember where, but I remember the message where you were saying, keep your credit rating at half capacity or less. I used to think I was being awesome keeping my credit cards loaded to the tilt. And you taught me that I should never use more than half my capacity. And since then, I've never, I'm emptying my credit cards all the time just to get better credit rating. Anyways, my point is when you're authentic and you go out and you tell your story, it's not going to happen in a month. And you can't just hire a dude or a PR agency to make, make get your message out there in three months. It's about doing it over a really long amount of time. And, if, and at the beginning, nobody, it would be like outsourcing the show to somebody else. It wouldn't get any views. Now, when you get big enough, you can start spinning off different, you know, uh, things off of your, your main channel. But at the beginning, you got to do it yourself. So I'm a huge proponent in the early stages of the funding. You, you should have been doing your own PR. You should have been out there pitching uh, New York Times, the Financial Post, or whoever your audience is. I think your audience would have been more like, um, you know, more people in the middle. But uh, you should have been doing your own PR. You would have had much more success, just like you're having even more success here now that you build your own show. You know what I've noticed, um, you know, kind of as a byproduct is it always shocks me when somebody tells me after the fact that they watch my shit, like a guy like you, for example, 
I think to myself, why would you have time to pay attention to a, to a short clip on me talking about utilization on your credit to have a good credit score? I was at a Starbucks the other day and I ran into a friend of mine. Um, he's a guy that does like rehabs on houses. He's very successful. He wrote a book on it. I actually had him on my channel a long, long time ago, a couple of years ago. We did like this quick video on like four tips in his truck. Very but, cool. um, I hadn't seen him a couple of years and he just kind of like sticks his head around the corner. He's like all excited to see me. He's like, I've been watching your shit like crazy. And it's like, I don't even know when people pay attention to my stuff. So I think that this, that this new age today where a lot of people kind of get like caught up in Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and all that sort of stuff, YouTube, it's, it's, if you have something interesting to say and you're a good storyteller, then share it because if it's, if it's worth sharing, like if the interesting is, sorry, if the message has interesting components to it, or it has sound bites in it that are either enlightening or triggering or entertaining or educating, it'll probably get moved around the internet at some point, right? Like, would you agree with that? I, I, I can't have said it better. I mean, I have nothing to add to that. It's exactly what you need to do. And when you're passionate about it and you're authentic about it, th these things that you and I might take for granted because, you know, it's just common sense and it's become common sense by us repeating these things. Uh, when you share these golden nuggets, I don't know how many times you've had probably people come up to you and be like, hey, Richard, thanks for giving me this piece of advice. It changed my yeah. life. It fixed my relationship or it made me, you know, whatever it is. I've had that happen as well. I know people tell you that all the time. And I'm like, I, sometimes I don't even remember saying a thing, like, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think when you, we owe mankind, as, as all of us, as entrepreneurs, as, as, as Wait, wait, human, wait. What about people kind, man? Sorry? What about people kind? Yeah, people kind, right. right. Sorry, my mistake. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. I, I know you are. Don't I know get, you're from Ottawa, so I, gotta, so I got to play you a little bit. What's that? I know that you're from Ottawa. You know, you're right by our uh, nation's great capital with Justine Trudeau. So I, so I got to play Yeah, I'm a little bit. too <laughs> Don't get me started. You're going you're gonna to trigger me now. Anyway, mankind, carry on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the bottom line is I think that authenticity and knowledge, when we share what we have as just organically, people eventually will pay attention. And and uh, that is leading with value. Again, we're coming back to the same uh, subject matter, which is if you lead with value, you're going to get way more out of out of uh, people than if you uh, ask first. What are you known for? Like, is it mostly getting free PR? I don't know what I'm known for. I mean, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, first and foremost, uh, that's how I define myself as truly an entrepreneur. That's first and foremost. But I think... Um, what I'm known for, I think, is is launching businesses and knowing how to get that early growth momentum without having to spend a lot of capital. And that happens to be one of the best tools for that happens to be PR. Bootstrap. And so uh, I just want to be known as an entrepreneur and I just want to be known as somebody that brings value to people and, and, and encourages people and inspires people. I think that's what we all want deep down inside. But PR, yeah, today it's about earned media PR. Definitely my focus. If you're... Um... You know, if you're going to launch a business, um, how much value does free PR and bootstrapping have versus building something that you need venture capital for? Like there's a lot of guys that, that go running around looking to raise money for their business. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I've known a few anyway that have raised a lot of money. They've run yeah. their business for a few years, then there's an exit, and then they find themselves with like legitimately next to nothing, right? You know, because they've diluted their interest yes. in the business so much and they've just giving it to a bunch of other people or companies or VCs or yeah. angel investors. Yeah. Like what's the, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, I think when you start a company, you, look, you don't need PR to be an incredibly successful company. You don't, you can, you can 
just build a great product and the word gets out organically sometimes. Sometimes your product just doesn't need PR. Uh, there are certain companies that have never done PR or done a lot of media or are extremely successful. Don't get me wrong. But when you start off with a company that's unique, that has a unique differentiator and it's interesting, you're going to just, your life is going to be so much easier. And it's actually Jeff Bezos that is renowned for, you know, CEO of, of Amazon for making his product managers write a press release. So I always encourage people, like before you even build a product or any idea, before you build a business plan, write a press release. One of the, try this, Richard, and people watching, honestly, next time you have a product idea or a company idea, just try to write a press release. The headline, what you're announcing, the, the five W's, who, what, when, where, how much. And if you can't make your idea fucking interesting on one page, one piece of paper, in a way that journalists will be interested or other people will be interested in, don't bother building that company because you're going to have a hell of a time explaining it to others, selling it to others, or, or getting anybody to invest. And so, so I think that companies that start off with this mentality of being unique and different just have an easier time attracting everything uh, if you start off with this mentality of a, a PR first mentality, if you want to call it that. You're... I kind of want to pivot a little bit here for a second. So you're a bit of a red pill guy, right? I mean, like you watch my stuff, you know, all the concepts. Absolutely. Yeah. Like how, how deep down the rabbit hole have you gone? Like, have you gone through like the rational mailbook series and stuff like that? No, I haven't, I haven't digested a lot of the, the, the books and the content. I yeah. definitely watch a lot of your content and I definitely agree your advice um, is, is very much like, it's the kind of advice that, Luckily, I, I've, uh, I consider myself an alpha male and always have considered myself an alpha male. And so a lot of it just reinforces a lot of the ideas that I've had. But I think what you offer to a lot of guys who maybe didn't have a dad growing up or that just didn't have the right role models is a lot of the common sense and things to look out for. And, um, but I definitely agree with a lot of the things that you, uh, that you talk about, the advice that you give. You're you're a bit of a natural though, right? I mean, like, was your dad an alpha? Like, what was your childhood like growing up like where no. did you get that from no no i watched my father um be essentially bossed around by my, my mom bless her the reason that i'm even successful i will tell you this i would probably be a criminal or who knows where i would be honestly if i didn't have an amazing uh mother growing up so i'm very lucky very blessed i had a great father as well but i definitely watched my mother um you know really really him around, around. push him around a bit yeah and i said and that's another thing i said i'm, I'm never ever going to allow that to happen. Uh, and I've stuck to that. So it's, it's really important. I think I actually molded me. I did not have a, an alpha for a father. He's, mm. you know, he's passed away now and I really love him and admire many of the things he did for us growing up, but it's certainly, I learned from what not to do. Mm. Uh, That's good. Um, so back to my point about, um, you know, the lens in which you view the world and your success with business. So I was having a conversation uh, a couple months ago. I do this other show on Monday nights called uh, Before the Trainwreck. And I had yeah. this um, guy fill in that's an author. His name's Aaron Cleary. And a lot of guys will just kind of like go straight to how do I get the girls, right? Like, um, how do I get girls? How do I get the girls? And yeah. I mean, if anybody follows you on Instagram, they'll see you have no problem with women, obviously. But um They'll put too much focus on chasing tail. By the way, it's one woman now. I'm actually a one woman guy for the first time in like 40 years. So, cool. uh, not well for the last few years. I've been in a, believe it or not, in a single, you know, monogamous relationship. So it's uh, it's been great. But okay, so we stand corrected. So um, the point of the the uh, the uh, story here is so 
a lot of guys will go directly to how do I get the girls? And I feel like the question should be more like, how do I put my dent in the universe? How do I chase excellence? And one of the questions that I asked Aaron, and I want to put this to you, do you think it's easier to create and build a business that makes a million dollars a year in revenue than it is to find a perfect woman to wife up? <laughs> Look, building a million dollar business is not easy. Um, it's not. But I think that if you create, if you first of all take care of yourself, and a lot of this goes against a lot of people's advice, like be selfish. And what I mean by that is make sure that you're put yourself first. Put yourself first. Yeah. Because make yourself no one your own mental point of origin is basically what, what it boils down to. Correct. And and so I think we're both very aligned on this. If you chase excellence, if you take care of yourself physically, if you are successful, whatever that means to you, you're going to respect yourself more and that you're going to be more attractive to everybody, to mm -hmm. whether it's women, uh, employees, investors, whatever, you're going to attract people. And so you got to be selfish. You got to start with yourself and you kind of got to, you know, to use Jordan Peterson's kind of line, you got to make your own bet. You, you, you got you to clean your room first before you can start going out there and doing anything. And so, yeah, I'm 100% alignment with that is, uh, be excellent and you will attract excellence. You can't go out there and be a slob, be a loser, not work hard, not have a work ethic, and then hope that a 10 out of 10 model is going to fall in love with your slobby ass. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely uh, start with yourself and, uh, and you will attract what you are. So back to the question, do you think it's easier to build a million dollar business or find that one perfect girl? I'd probably say it's easier to, to build a million dollar business because then the rest of the life is easy. Right, because the second part becomes that much more easier because then you've got more you've got more access. I mean, you've got more inventory to choose from because you're a higher value guy, right? Correct. Correct. And, uh, see, you know, I see this general trend today. Um, and I never noticed it before until I started doing this stuff in YouTube. And it wasn't even for the first little while. It's only been like the last few years that I've noticed this trend. There's a lot of guys that just throw in the towel. They're like, fuck it, I'm not doing it, women aren't worth it, it's not worth chasing money, there's only so much of it out there, all the rich people already have it. What do you say to those guys that are like kind of more of the um, I've given up attitude? What you're going, you're going to get, you're going to hit the target that you're aiming for. If you believe that the, there's scarcity, you're going to see scarcity and you're going to have scarcity. Uh, you're not going to have anything. Uh, I think it's like almost everything is created up here in your brain, right? Um, mm -hmm. And you know, you are what you think you are, if that makes sense, you know, and I think you, you definitely believe in this is the idea of if you think you're successful and intelligent enough and you apply yourself, of course, and do the work, right, you're going to, you're going to see the benefits eventually. And so, yeah, I mean, look, I've never had a loser mentality. It's just the one thing I've never had. Maybe it's my mom that instilled that in me. But uh, if you think like a loser, you're going to become a loser. And if you think like a winner and act like a winner, you're going to eventually win. Uh, it's just that's been my my pattern that I that I've seen. With what would you say are your are your top habits um, that allow you to win in life? Like, what are the top three to five habits you would say that um, you know are are your core values? You know how we talked about core values with Cameron, you know, with a vivid vision yep. and all that sort of stuff. Like, what are your core values today that you utilize with every choice that you make to get better results out of life? Yeah, there's there's they're all going to be cliches. I'm going to tell you that straight up because I usually take it from somebody else or from a book or whatever. I, I, but, but my remix on that is, you know, the first thing for me is don't settle. And that's actually a really easy one that anybody can do. Um, and what I mean by that is you, you set the bar where you want to be 
and then measure up to that bar. And so for small things for me, like I made a decision a long time ago that I'm never going to fly coach. I don't fly coach. I only fly first class. And even my friends, I make a lot more. And I'm not saying that to sound like a douchebag. What I'm saying is I just decided I don't like flying uh, coach. I'm going to only fly first class. Or if I stay in a hotel, I only want to stay in a beautiful boutique hotel because I want to surround myself with beautiful things because I deserve that. And it inherently becomes true after a while, right? So you set your bar, the kind of car you want to drive, the kind of woman you want to be with, the kind of house you want to live in, and and don't settle. Because if you settle, that's the beginning. That's the cancer of, of being uh, a failure is settling. Don't settle. Uh, I'm going to say the other big one for me is you are who you surround yourself with. I've never seen this not be true. Like um, if you surround yourself with athletes, you're going to be athletic. If you surround yourself with billionaires, you might only become a millionaire, but you're going to learn something whether you want to or not through osmosis. And so those are the two major things. Don't settle and don't settle with the people you hang out with. Don't hang out with toxic people. Mm -hmm. Don't hang out with losers. If your girlfriend's putting you down and doesn't want to rise you up, get rid of her, get a new one or be alone for a bit until you're, until you deserve to have a, a, a better relationship, but uh, don't settle and hang out with great people. That's really my rule. What are you up to this winter? You were talking about, um, you know, getting together with some of the gang and doing some snowboarding and skiing at uh, Baldface. Yeah. So first and foremost, I don't spend winters in Canada as much as I love our country. For now, 11 years, I, I, I live in uh, Santa Monica, California for three, four months out of every year. It's something I've been doing no matter what. It's what I do every year, no matter what size the company is at, no matter how I'm feeling, that's what I do. And then ironically, I'm going to do a little uh, snow hunting with Dan Martell, um, the guy who started uh, Clarity and is just a you know just a, an amazing guy, an amazing coach. The SaaS companies. I know you know you know. Do you know Dan Martel? Oh yeah, that's that's how I got on Clarity. I mean, Cameron right. actually introduced me to him when I was at a mastermind talks. He's like, you got to talk to this guy Dan because I was because I was talking to Cameron. I'm like, a lot of people keep messaging me asking me for help with something. He goes, here's my friend Dan. Let me introduce yeah. you. And he brings him over. And he's like, sign up for Clarity.fm and let him book you for coaching. Right. So. Dan did an exit. So anyway, so I mean, like he's doing this thing this winter. Yeah. So he's invited about 45 guys up to Baldface. Uh, Baldface is pretty cool. Uh, have you been there before? I haven't been there. No, I've not got an invite yet. Well, we'll, we'll get you. We'll get you that invite because it's uh, it's cool in a couple of senses. I mean, it's got more powder than anywhere else and really? you can only get to it by helicopter. So there's no roads leading to this place. And are you uh, snow hunting, you said, or are you skiing? I said snow hunting in the sense oh, that I'm okay. hunting for snow. Hunting for snow. I, I don't actually hunt, but um, yeah, like usually I'm trying to get away from the snow. In this case, I'm chasing the snow. Got it. Okay. And so we're, you're taking a helicopter up to uh, Baldface, the only way to access it, and then spending four days with a bunch of really smart guys that are all uh, technologies, like SaaS founders and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. that's not the reason I'm going. I'm going there to push myself. I have a extreme fear of avalanches. Um, known a few people that have died in avalanches and i've always been a huge snowboarder mountain biker downhill sports guy and i've always avoided like dan calls me every year and i'm like i'm busy that week and i said you know what fuck it i'm gonna do it mm -hmm. um i'm gonna go ahead and go big and uh yeah just gonna go for it and uh, i'm really looking forward to that in january yeah it's always good to surround yourself with guys like that i mean you know going back to your earlier point of you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with i mean if you spend time with 40 guys that are top shelf and running excellent companies chasing excellence they're putting themselves first i get like here's okay so here's an interesting point so one of the thing i've noticed about really really successful guys that are putting that are putting a dent in the universe that are chasing excellence you know they're able to get together with all these people and do these really really cool things 
there's a lot of guys that tend to suffer with women still that that tend to struggle with women have you noticed that yes why yes. do you think that is you know what i think it's different for everybody um i think we all have insecurities look we can act as tough as we want but i mean everyone i know has some sort of insecurity in their lives and i think that until you deal with those the root of that you, mm -hmm. you can fool other people for a bit but you can't fool yourself and so um i'm gonna flip that back to you why do you think uh that happens they subscribe to the same myths, notions, and lies that society, culture, religion, school, parenting, everything has sold them their entire life that everybody else has, which is which is difficult to see past until you're ready to accept the truth, right? I mean, these guys work so hard. Like, they can build a $50, $100 million business within five years, you know, in some cases. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll make more money than most people ever see in their entire lives, but they'll let a woman push them around and run them through the grinder or tear them through the divorce machine. Right. Um, and they, and they never see it coming. Right. I mean, like a lot of the coaching that I do on clarity is kind of in the higher end cause my billing rate per minute is pretty high now. And it's only really cause I want to work with guys like that and they can afford to, you know, carve out the time for it, but it's, you're not, you're not setting the bar low. You just did exactly yeah. set the bar high. Well, so therefore now you're worth that. That's well, the way it works. To your point, you know, when I first started doing the Clarity at 200 bucks an hour, the kind of calls that I was getting booked were I work in the oil sands, my roommate's a stoner, my ex-wife's uh, very difficult, she's giving me a hard time with my son, I can't get out of the place, what do I do? And it's like, I don't want to have those basic conversations. I want to deal with a guy that's having a higher level problem that I can solve so he can release himself from it and go and put his dent in the universe sort of thing. Um, so as I went higher scale and I valued myself more, I made more money and I actually work less and I make more money. So working less, making more money, um, you know, paid off in that sense. And I also understand entrepreneurs. Like I get their mindset. I get their struggle. I do it. I've done it. I still do it. Um, so I always find it fascinating that there's a lot of guys out there that are absolutely top shelf world, world class at what they do. They can build some of the best technology companies, some of the most interesting products, solve the most difficult problems that other people can't. But, they can't get over something like a one-itis, like, how do I get her back rich, right? You know, sort of thing. Or I don't understand why she was banging Chad in Cancun when she went away with her girlfriends and and I bought her the house and the renovated the bathroom and gave her the kids and all this sort of stuff, right? So I always find that really, really interesting when it comes to dudes. And that's kind of the area that I'm, that I'm leaning more into focusing on too. Yeah, I have no idea what causes that phenomenon because uh, starting a company is extremely difficult. You've got to put up with so many challenges every day. Um, you would think that uh, these guys would be able to apply that those same principles to the relationship, right? Um, and I think in a lot of ways, if you can't, I mean, look, it's having a successful relationship is a little different than running a company, but you should be able to apply the principles of, you know, respect and being able to be respect. So again, it comes down to not settling. I've seen, I've seen guys. I mean, quite honestly, the guys that I've seen who have terrible relationships, kind of allow it to happen if, if that makes sense like you know one little thing and then they don't say anything and then one thing turns to five little things and then before you know it um you know you you don't have that mutual respect anymore and i think it's got to be mutual right uh it, it's, it's got to be two ways and I, I yeah i've seen this phenomenon too i won't name any names but there's some pretty big names out there mm -hmm. guys that have just been steamrolled by their by their partners uh by you know their wives uh and sometimes by their husbands too, right? So, so the, the the point is, yeah, I've seen it and I, I really don't understand it. I saw a picture of you the other day. Uh, I think you posted it on, on Instagram. You're looking at a Ferrari. 
Let's talk about cars for a bit because love cars. Have you ever gotten into a rally before? No, that's that's on my list. And uh, you know Saturn, right? Saturn, like. Saturn oh yes, I do know Saturn. Ca ca uh, the cars and coffee. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did one I rally. Sorry, yeah. that kind of rally. I thought you meant rally car racing. That's the whole other thing. Well, that's uh, another one too. I've done that as well down in Cabo in Mexico. Yes, I ask, saw that. Ask, um, I asked ask uh, Dan about that because I know he's done that as well. Too, yes, he's Dirtfish. Like, he's doing something I think called Dirtfish. No, it's I not Dirtfish. It's um, wide open Baja. It's actually like off road racing in these ninety thousand dollar race cars. They're, they're that's the one you did. Cars. And I messaged you on Instagram the first time we really communicated on Instagram. I was like, "Where are you, man? That's my dream." Yeah. So I mean, I love off roading and I love track racing, and I have done rallies. I mean, anything anything on four wheels, I'm into. So did you pick up that Ferrari or what did you <laughs> no? So the Ferrari, the Ferrari was uh, uh, I, I actually got to go down to the factory, uh, just like everybody else looked, just do a lot of window shopping, but yeah. had to take one out for the day, yeah. and uh, it was a four eight eight, an amazing car. I'm definitely going to get one. Uh, I just think it's just I know it's kind of stupid to say this, but it is the most impractical car imaginable. So at least with an R eight, you know you've. You got this back seats if you need it, and There's you no get, back seats you get, in an R8. It's a two seater, dude. Oh, is it? Yeah, and the trunk's okay. even smaller in my car than it is in a um, Ferrari. The Ferrari's okay, have a much so, bigger so trunk because a Quattro system takes. You're in Lambo territory with that thing, yeah. So you've got. Yeah. The, I forget that it's basically the same frame as a Lambo. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's no practicality in your car either. But yeah, um, yeah I, I did not buy the Ferrari. It's in. It's definitely on my list uh, to get a Ferrari, but it's going to have to be. I think a secondary vehicle. And the thing right now is I live in California. I live in Canada. Uh, it would have to be in California for me to really justify it at all because we, you know, we don't have enough time to drive it, but it's, I'm going to get one. Mm. I'm going to get one. Um, when you were in Italy, when you went to Marinello, so, so you went to the Ferrari plant. Did you just go to the Lambo plant and the Pagani one? I would, uh, Pagani, I would have gone see. In fact, the guy, if you see the video, uh, I'll send it to you after, but the guy that I was, uh, test driving the car with uh who actually used to work for pagani was a test driver for pagani oh that big good looking italian dude uh, no he was a uh, big dude he was big but he wouldn't uh, you know uh he he, didn't, he wasn't a supermodel put it that okay. way but he was a very good driver and uh he, he used to he used to be one of many tests have a team of test drivers and it was really cool to talk to the guy yeah. um so so but I didn't go to lamborghini you know what i'm not a lamborghini guy i would have felt like a traitor even walking into that really family. Do you know the story behind Lamborghini? It's a very cool story. I do. I do respect the story. I do like that he kind of got pissed off. Yeah, yeah. At Enzo and just I just want to tell it because I know a lot of people probably haven't heard it, but um, Ferruccio Lamborghini uh, had a, a tractor company at the time, and he was working after World War II because there's a lot of like U.S. military gear that was left behind, bulldozers right. and engineering stuff. And he basically started to build tractors and he wanted to buy a nice exotic car and he bought a Ferrari and he didn't like it. So he went to Enzo and he's like, the transmission doesn't work well. This yeah. this part sucks. Can you fix it? And <laughs> Enzo it. basically told him to go fuck himself because yeah. all he really cared about was racing. And the only reason why he made cars was to make money to go racing. That's right. So <laughs> Lamborghini goes, go fuck myself. Okay. I'm going to go fuck myself over here and make a car better than yours is basically what he did. Right. Yeah. So it's a very cool entrepreneurial sort of like, um, journey and it's, it's a very successful company. I think they probably sell more cars than Ferrari now. You think so? I know the Huracan has been a big seller for them. Um, and with the Urus and the infusion into Audi and Volkswagen, you know, that whole group. So they're able to cross pollinate. Cause I know that Ferrari's really just owned by uh, Fiat, yeah. right? By Fiat. Yeah. 
Yeah, but all all great and beautiful cars. But anyway, dude, if you get one, I'll I'll hook you up with a rally because I'm doing another one again this summer. There's yeah. I think there's only like twelve or thirteen slots left open. So if you get one, let me know and I'll get you brought into the group. But it's like the most fun you can have with your clothes on, hanging out with a bunch of other dudes in fast cars. Because yes. you have this entire system set up with like radios and screens and ways and radar detectors cool. and CBs and police scanners and all. It's just awesome. I, I got to do one. I actually did one um, uh, in the, I have a Maserati. So it has a Ferrari engine at least, but it's like a yeah. GT. And uh, I, when it was new, I brought it out and there were just, you know, cars out there were incredible. Ferraris and I mean, you name it. You've seen, I've seen your videos. Uh, I got to do it though. We went to uh, Muskoka and the radios and it was just a, Pretty cool bunch of group for group for the most part, and uh, we had a blast. Nice. Um, I'm going to let you guys uh, hop in and ask questions if you want, because we got about another 25 minutes left. So I'll put it in the actually I'll put it in the general chat so it distributes everywhere. Uh, join us and ask a question. Boom. And I want to talk to you about the Baja racing thing. So um, every year I do I, I go out and do the Razor stuff, right? I get the boot around in either palm springs and stuff i love razors because they're it's mm -hmm. like just fun to goof around a thousand cc you know kind of thing mm -hmm. but how is the baja i mean that's that's something i definitely want to do and uh it's, tell um, me about that a little bit it's like a bigger razor um they're not that much more powerful like, i think the power to weight ratio is pretty much the same as a razor but the okay. suspension's way more capable i think you get about a foot and a half of suspension travel um so you can do things to those buggies that I mean, you can roll them and they'll just go back on the wheels and you can drive away. Wow. Right? Like they're really, 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 really tough and they can take all kinds of terrain. Like as long as you're not submerging it underwater or rolling it off a cliff, they can pretty much drive over it. And um, actually, I got a video I put on my channel. I'll send it to you later so you can watch it. Yeah. But it's, I don't usually vlog on my channel car stuff, but I did a vlog of that um, trip that I did down to Baja. Right. And I went off road at almost 95 miles an hour going around a bend and I hit a cactus. <laughs> but I mean, you got to watch the video to see it, but it's, it's I want to watch awesome. that. So what about like, so did you have a respirator, uh, air tubes and stuff like yeah. that? Or was it, were you just swallowing up dust the whole time? No, there's a, uh, there's a, there's basically a, a curtain that Velcros onto your helmet so that it keeps the dust out. Yeah. And then there's a, a pumper pack, so it keeps positive air pressure in your helmet. So if oh, any okay. dust comes in, it's just pushed out. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's and cool. A, and so um, the cars themselves, they must have a lot of roll, though, with that much travel. Mm -hmm. is it, how does it handle? Is it? Do you feel a lot of roll, a, lot, a ton of movement, I assume, right? Very loose. It's not like a road car. Like, there's right. no anti-roll bars. Like, there's no connection between the wheels. So if you can have one wheel up like this and one down like this, right? Right. Yeah. And what's the top speeds that can hit on those things? Um, it's only a four-speed manual. And I yep. think wide open, you can get up to about 100 miles an hour tops. Like if you're wow. downhill with the wind behind you. But it feels really fast because there's no windshield. There's nothing there. It's just it's just you and the wind. And there's cactuses zooming by you like this. Right? I've got to do crazy. it. Okay. I want you to send me information on that because I definitely want to sign up for that. Um, yeah. Have you ever done any cart like uh, F2000 or... Um, like any of that type of stuff. Um, no, I've never done any stuff. any like open wheel racing, but I yeah. but I had a shifter cart when I was younger, so I used to race shifter carts on a um, Mossport. Yep. And that's a really big workout, right? But I mean, yeah. I raced motorcycles on the street. You know, when I say race on the street, I I had a sport bike that we'd race with friends, like on the ramps and at you know the middle of the night and stuff like that. So I've always yeah. been on fast things, and then by about thirty, some of my friends started to die on bikes, so I sold the bike and I got a 
fast convertible and kind of went into like the exotic car convertibles and I'm going to be picking up something else for next year too. What do you, what do you, uh, what's next on the list? Uh, it's going to have an engine in the middle and over 600 horsepower. So I'll, I'll let you know when I get it. Okay. I got it. I, I see where you're going with that. I mean, you know, what's funny is I'm, um, looking for a little bit of practicality so that I'm leaning towards, um, getting a G wagon and I put a place in order on one. And, uh, what are your thoughts on sort of, um, you know, the, the Defender versus, you know, the G-Wagons and these sort of luxury SUVs. You find that they're... I like the new, um, I think it's called the Defender that's coming out by Land Rover, right? They've, yeah. they've got the 90 and then the 110. Yeah. I think I would go for one of those, honestly, because I've liked the Wrangler, but it's too kiddie-like and, you know, you see a lot of um, younger people and it's not that, like, refined inside. It's kind of shitty on the inside. Yeah. I think I'd go for, like, one of those Land Rover Defenders that are coming out next year they got the 90 which is a two-door and they got the 110 which is a four-door I'd, I'd probably just get the 90 right i, just get I it feel just, like, i feel like they ruined it i honestly love the uh, the classic defender like the old school defender that sort of militarized um, you can still buy them they're still on the auto trader but they're just like you know they're just old they they drive terrible i took one for a test drive the other day just for fun and i yeah. i just i couldn't handle it i was like yeah, yeah you don't I want that like you want something that's a little more refined it's got like an air suspension you can raise it and lower it whatever right yeah and serious horsepower and you know something that you know, as, as a sort of a, a daily driver, right? So, um, but yeah, the Ferrari is going to be next. And the, I'm the surprised next you one. ordered a G wagon, man. I wasn't a big fan of that when I drove it. No, you didn't like it. I, I found. A, did you drive the new ones? Uh, not the newest generation. The last one up until about a, like a year or two ago. Okay. I just I don't know. Like the windshield's right here in your face, and I don't know. It just feels like a soccer mom car when I drive it. Like I said, yeah, the like old one too. You have to take a 2020 or 2019 like and stuff. It's next. It's completely different, completely yeah. different vehicle. But yeah, we'll share we'll share some car stuff offline that I'm looking at some other stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, guys, the link's there if you want to join in and ask a question. I mean, you know, you got a couple of dudes on here for a little bit longer. Oh, there we go. We got John on, so we'll throw him in the stream. What's up, Johnny? Hey, man, how you guys doing? Good. We're shaking, brother. I'm just just waking up. It's Friday morning in Tokyo here. I'm really loving this episode. I just want to ask a very quick question. Um, so let's say you're getting great organic traffic for whatever your business is. Do you think it is a viable solution to add paid traffic to that if what you're having is already getting traction? Or what would you be your professional advice on that? That's a great, that's a really good one, actually. So, yes, I'm, I'm not knocking paid uh, advertising at all. I think I think you need to do both because – the thing with, um, of course, with earned media is that you can't control it. You can't control the messaging. You can't control the timing. So what I often suggest people do is let's just say you get on the Today Show with your product or you get in the New York Times. What I often say is take that momentum, put it into an ad, and then pay money to send either that traffic. Some people send the traffic to the ad, uh, to the article. Some people will send it back to their site using the, the, the media they already got. But the cool thing is... What happens if somebody clicks on that New York Times article because they're curious about your company, they come to your site, you want to pixel track them, right? Use pixel tracking and then retarget them. Because it's really rare that somebody's going to see you, click on you know, the, the article and buy whatever you're selling that day. There's going to be a sales cycle. So, so I definitely like paid, um, especially for retargeting, uh, right. complemented by earned to keep your, cost, your acquisition costs lower, right? So that's all that earned media is going to do. It's going to lower your cost of acquisition over time. It's going to increase your SEO. So you're going to have better organic positioning, but you don't want to not do paid. You definitely want to have a healthy blend of, of both. When, so is your if you were to do 
uh, paid ads, right? Are you saying that your go-to would be Facebook, Facebook ads and whatnot? It really depends on what you're selling, right? It really does. But yeah, in general, Facebook is the, the best platform in general, right? Some people have actually better success with Google AdWords for certain categories, uh, you know, Facebook's for certain categories, Instagram's great for other categories. So there's no one catch-all. I mean, if you're doing B2B software, I mean, you know, the nice thing about Facebook, it pretty much works for across almost any sector, but right. you know, LinkedIn might be uh, worth looking at for certain companies. Uh, it really depends. I would say it depends on what you're selling, who your target audience is. Okay, and then uh, one more question. So. Uh, in regards, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because are you familiar with Dan Locke? Yeah. Yeah, I heard he made a lot of money doing retargeting. Like that's like was with the backbone of what really uh, brought him up. So if you, so um, well, I guess you kind of answered it already. I guess so if you were to choose one avenue of paid advertisement, it would be Facebook, it wouldn't be Google ads or Instagram or anything along those lines. Yeah, and I would say pick a, what I would say for sure is what, the biggest mistake that I've seen people do is uh, try to do all the channels at once, right? You're on YouTube, you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook. Pick a channel, and usually I like to start with uh, with Facebook if you're going to do paid, and just master that. Get your numbers right, get your acquisition costs right. We, I work for, uh, uh, work with and advise a company called Manly Bands. Or they make men's wedding rings, actually, but really cool men's wedding rings. And, um, you know, we focus on one channel, we've got it dialed in, and it's Facebook. And so uh, pick one channel, dominate it before you move on to others and start experimenting with other channels for sure. I just want to add to that because I mean, I got a little bit of experience this with the um, debt business. So yeah. if if somebody's searching on Google, like people go to Google to look for answers for shit, right? So if it's, how do I get a debt consolidation loan? Like mm -hmm. I can target those words yeah, and mm -hmm. I can send them to my ad, which will then send them to a landing page and the landing page will uh, be directly related to what they're searching for with a specific call to action. Now, if um, you're not talking to, to somebody directly about something that they're searching for an answer to, like if they're on Facebook, people aren't on Facebook to go looking for answers for stuff. Like they're not on Facebook looking for, how do I get a debt consolidation loan? They're on Facebook to creep their exes because they're bored, because they're sitting on the toilet for a whole bunch of reasons, right? Sure. So um, what you want to do is you only want to target people that already know you is what I've noticed works the best. So we already have an email list. We already have a Facebook page for the debt business. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we specifically target people that are already um, known to us and they know, like, and already, you know, hopefully trust us because those are the ones that'll convert. Because if you just randomly put your ad in front of people that are on Facebook and they're not looking for getting out of debt, what they're going to do is they're going to hide your shit. Yeah. And then the algorithms are going to pick up on that. And then your cost to show your ads is going to go up dramatically. So for things like Facebook and, and Instagram platforms where, where people browse them just to kill time or because they're taking a shit or they're creeping somebody, you just want to make sure that you only place your ads in front of somebody that, like for you, watches your videos, has already visited your website, follows you on a social media platform, like there's some cross-pollination. Yeah, right. Because then when they see the ad, they're going to be like, oh, there's that guy and he's got that offer. So let me check it out. Yeah. So YouTube or um, for retargeting or uh, um, Facebook for retargeting with uh, intent based search on Google works for, worked well for you guys, right? That's awesome. Well, I just downloaded your book. I saw it's on sale for the next seven days on Audible. So I got it. Uh, I got I bought it for with the one credit. So awesome. I look forward to reading it, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Yeah. See Take care. Thank you. That was cool.
Um, yeah, I mean, have you seen this company borrow well? Yeah, actually, um, I was going to do some work with them, you know, with the debt business, but they're they're kind of leaning into an area that I don't really like. But yeah, yeah, it looks like they're going after sort of cash, um, almost cash advance type technology, right? Payday loan stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's where the money is, right? Like the, I'm not going to name the company, but I got involved with a company out in the West Coast that is like one of the biggest in the payday loan companies mm -hmm. at one point. Like we were going to do some cross promotion and some affiliate marketing, mm -hmm. and. Um, I just, I just can't, like, I can't sleep at night if I know that I'm partnered with a business that's ripping people off and selling them high interest loans sort of thing. Um, but there's a huge, huge need for people looking for short term uh, loans or more specifically what they're always looking for. They don't want to deal with the problem of the debt, which is what created the debt, which is their belief system and how they manage money. But what they want to deal with is I fucked up. I have $20,000 in debt. Give me more money to pay off the $20,000 in debt. And that business is always going to trump what we do. And I'm fine with that, right? Because people are looking for that quick solution rather than going to the root yeah. and fixing the root problem. Everybody right? wants to pop a pill and lose 20 pounds, rub yeah. a cream under their eye and, yeah. you know, what, you know, wipe away eight years of, of wrinkles. People are fucking lazy. They don't want to yeah. do the work, right? Yeah, that's true. People do not want to do the work. And I think if you want to stand out, all you have to do is honestly 5% more than the next person in your industry and you'll actually succeed. If you could just push it past mediocre because most I will say most companies, most individuals are, are fine with mediocre being in the middle. Yep. Uh, so imagine doubling that and being twice as good as everybody else who dominate whatever category you're in. So, so, so from your experience with the canvas company for canvas pop and for, and for DNA 11, like how important was it for you to be in like the leadership role? Because there was a lot of canvas printing companies that came out around the same time. Yeah. There's no option. You have to be the category leader. Like why, why play to lose going back to what we talked about before? We wanted to reestablish the category. We started doing mobile photo printing. We started doing crazy guarantees. Again, we're stealing from uh, Zappos saying, you know, if they, if they can provide a uh, one-year refund policy, we can provide a lifetime one. So we started doing like, get your money back anytime if you're not happy with it. We started doing crazy stuff. And you know what? We didn't go bankrupt. In fact, the opposite happened. We started uh, not having to do advertising. Uh, like I said, we spent very little money. I'm not the guy to talk to about paid advertising because we built a company that was doing, you know, does 10 million plus a year with no advertising. Like, I know very hard to believe that, but we, we did it. Like we did it by using word of mouth. And yeah, that's interesting. Fun. There's, um, I can't remember who it was, but I was, but one of the first Baja trips that I took, Yannick Silver invited me to, again, thankfully through Cameron Harrell, because he introduced me to Yannick because he was coaching him as, as well. But during that Baja trip, he had uh, Joe Sugarman, who was a copywriter. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he taught us on that trip was uh, give them a long as possible uh, guarantee on the product. Yeah. And actually, the longer it is, he said, the less likely they are to ever return it. No. Right. Because, I mean, yeah. if you're doing like a canvas print and it's on the wall, what's going to happen to it? It's not going to rot. Nothing. It's not going to like there's no moving parts. Nothing. Nothing. Like, nobody returned them. Like I mean, what, we had why would anybody refund it? And if you're the only company offering a lifetime guarantee on the product, return it at any time. Correct. That's a competitive advantage against the other guy. Yes. And so one of the things that I do with a lot of the companies that I advise is it's not a problem until it's a problem. Like you can run a cohort, cohort of data and just say, look, we're going to, I always get like, do crazy guarantees. No one takes up on them. And if they do, guess what? You've got a product problem and you need to fix it anyways if you want to keep your, your net promoter score, your reputation high anyway. So it's a great way to just 
you're going to get real-time feedback from your customers if your product sucks, they're going to return it. And the, the key to that is just create a great product, create a great experience, and make it easy for people to do business with you. You know what? I'm glad you mentioned Net Promoter Score because I want to wrap up on that note. we got like 10 more minutes left. So sure. um, for those of you guys that don't know, Net Promoter Score is basically an evaluation tool that most companies use to determine how likely it is that you are to re recommend your product to other people. So if you just get off your phone and you're with your cell phone company and then you get a text message afterwards or they say, you know, please hold for a survey and it says on a scale of one to five or on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend our service to somebody that needs a cell phone? Nine and 10 would be a, a promoter. Seven and eight would be somebody that's passive. They're indifferent. They are not a promoter. They don't really care. They're not going to say anything bad. They're not going to say anything good. And sevens and unders are all detractors. So I did this video on my channel a couple of years ago, and I still think it's one of the most important videos and not enough people see it. It's only got like 40,000 views, but the title of it is why genuine burning desire matters with women. So you guys can go search it. I'm not going to dig it up. Just go to my channel. It's why genuine burning desire matters. And then put entrepreneurs and cars after that in the YouTube search. And I basically used the net promoter score and I applied it to, you know, the sexual marketplace hmm. because um, I didn't really see that much of a difference. And I saw a direct alignment and I noticed that in my own, you know, use of it, it made a lot of sense. So using the same metric, if a woman's got very strong desire for you, like a nine or a 10, you're going to know it, right? She's going to show up for dates early. She's going to dress beautifully. She's going to have hair and makeup done. Um, you know, she's going to lean into you. She's going to text you. You know, she's going to prompt you to, uh, you know, get your attention. Hey, how's your day? Right? Like you should know if she's a promoter of Adrian, yeah. right? Yeah. If she's passive, she'll probably, you know, give you a hard time for a date. She's going to want to reschedule. She may not dress up that nice. She's going to be hard to get in contact afterwards. She might be slow to respond, you know, by text message. Those will be like the passives, the sevens and eights. Sure. And then six and unders will be detractors. They won't respond to you when you contact them. They won't go out on dates. They're busy. They're going to put you in the friend zone sort of thing. So that being said, you knowing how the net promoter score works, now applying that to the sexual marketplace, because a lot of what I do is rip off and duplicate, right? Sure. R&D is just rip off and duplicate. Let's take sure. it from what industry it works. Let's put it somewhere else. And I think this works really well for the sexual marketplace. I actually have a chapter on this in my book, so it's going to be detailed in a little bit you know, greater depth with what's what and everything like that. But I want to get your take on that from that perspective. Do you think that as you're navigating, you know, the world and you're with women, you're dating women, obviously, um, you know, at this point you're in a relationship, but as you're dating women, how important do you think genuine burning desire is for you as a guy when it comes to attraction with the opposite sex and where you're going to allocate your time? Because for me personally, I wouldn't want to waste my time on a seven or eight because that's going to be too much work. Yeah, it doesn't matter how hot she is. We're not talking about visuals. We're talking about how they feel about you, right? I'm talking about interest. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think. why would you want to be with somebody that doesn't, you know, um, basically admire everything about you and love you? And I don't want to say worship you. That's a, maybe a silly term, but isn't that what you ultimately should have? And and you can give that back too, by the way. It's, it can be reciprocal, but you can't, you know, I, I've always said it's important, I think, in relationships to... Um, to, to be the one that's that's like on top, if you will. So, um, uh, and maybe this is my own mentality. Like, you know, a lot of people talk about equal, and a lot of people talk about, um, um, you know, I have to look up to my to my girlfriend, whatever. I, I say it's good. You have to have mutual respect. I think you have to have mutual respect, to be honest. But yeah. I think it's always better to be the one that's being, you know, admired, and and, and you got to earn that, right? You're not going to just sit there and be well, admired. Women don't admire useless 
men that are incompetent or incapable of doing anything, right? Correct. So let's be Correct. honest. So if you are a man of purpose, value, and vision, and you've put a dent in the universe and you're doing something of some significance, then that gives her something to admire. Yes. So yes. But a lot of guys will go and chase those like sevens and eight, like eights and unders, right? And I think that if you reinvest that energy into those sevens, eights, and unders that don't have high interest or lack interest completely in you, and rein and reinvest that energy in yourself, to yourself. put your dent in the universe, make make bank, make more money, invest. You'll have no problem. Yeah, you'll never deal with one of those. Again. Then you'll have the opportunity to put yourself in a position yeah. where most women that find you attractive anyway, you know, from a visual aspect, once they get to know you, will have stronger desire for you. And that makes your job as a guy easier because you're not chasing tail, you're now chasing excellence and she's in your frame. And that's what we talk about a lot, you know, when we're doing these broadcasts for, yep. you know, stuff in the sexual marketplace and rule zero. And I get involved with Rolo and John and a few other guys is um, you want a woman to compliment your life. You want her to enter your frame. You yes. don't want her to be the focus of your life. You want her to compliment it, compliment right? Absolutely. And of course, you're going to offer some use to her as well because you're a high value guy. So you see how I mash those two up there? You wrapped it right up. And, and, you know, to wrap it up even further with the whole net promoter square, I mean, essentially, if you create a great product, in other words, if you um, live a great life, if you look at yourself as a product, you're going to attract who you are, right? You're going to attract great customers. If your website looks great, you're going to attract great customers. If you take care of yourself, you work out and you work on being smarter and more efficient, great, great person first, you're going to attract better, uh, better women. And so it all, it all comes out of the power of attraction. So Corey, um, sorry, Conk, uh, thanks for putting that up on the screen, but it's why genuine burning desire from women matters. And he put a yeah. link there. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can click it. If you're watching this elsewhere, you'll have to go to YouTube to click it or just search for it there. But thanks. I think we can wrap it up on that note, man. That was a good chat. Yeah. I enjoyed that, man. I always like talking to you. love what you're doing. Appreciate what you're doing for, for a lot of men out there and, uh, sharing awesome content. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. Thanks brother. Um, you're ever in Toronto, man. Just, you know, let me know. We'll definitely have to get together and I'll, and I'll shout out to you. Tell uh, Dan and everybody that knows me that I said, said hi when you hit the uh, stage. I will. I'm going to grab that video for you and I'm going to send it to you just yeah. so you can check it out. You know, the Baja stuff. That'd be so awesome. Fly off the road. All right. All right, guys. We'll see you guys in the next uh, broadcast. It's uh, two weeks from now. And uh, I got John from Bulldog Mindset coming on. I know you know John too, right? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I know John. Okay. Um, anyway, he's down in uh, California. Actually, um, I might have to introduce you to him because he's in Cali uh, awesome. pretty much all the time now. But any friend of yours? Cool friend guy. Of awesome. And uh, next Monday we got a. Oh, actually, you know what? We're skipping before the the uh, uh, train wreck next Monday. It's um, next one on is with Robert Glover, who's the um, no more Mister Nice Guy dude. Oh uh, yeah, he's got great. a new book out. I think it's June six. Anyway, make sure you're subscribed and you hit the notification bell because when we announce it, that's when you'll get the uh, the heads up on it. And before I go. I know the banner's been running on the bottom, but I just have to quickly mention uh, Channel Sponsors Tactical Soap, because without uh, Scott from the Grondike Soap Company, this stuff couldn't happen. Fairmont-infused beard oil, handmade soap, high-quality shit. Christmas is coming up. Grab it for yourself. Grab it for uh, someone that you dig. Uh, there's a link pinned in the description, or you can just go to coopersoap.com. Check out with coupon code Cooper. You get 10% off. All right, Adrian. Thanks for joining right. me, brother. All right, man. It's we'll a see pleasure. see everybody in the next okay. one. Peace out. Awesome.